Hi everyone, welcome back to China the Caribbean. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Wasing Mangla about the state of Caribbean policy in Washington D.C. Does the Caribbean have any specific caucus arrangements or representation in Congress? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question、um, because I mean, you know, as most people know, is that a lot of the money comes from Congress. So having representation in Congress is it's extremely important.、Um, right now, it's the representation is a little bit odd because there's a Congressional Caribbean Caucus. However, you know, it's largely inactive. Um, it's very difficult to find any public record of them meeting. A lot of the members of that caucus itself don't even list that that specific caucus on、um, on their websites. So you know it, it's it, it's largely inactive. Instead, Caribbean interests and representation has come through the Congressional Black Caucus. The Congressional Black Caucus lists that it、um, the Caribbean is one of its focal points, and it's been. It's been influential,、um, you know, when、uh, the Jamaica IMF agreements,、um, you know, moving that 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 dialogue forward. The Congressional Black Caucus was um, very um, influential there.、Um, when it comes to sort of what's been happening recently in Haiti and in other times during you know the earthquake and things like that, they've made statements there. But but the problem what the problem is when it comes to the Congressional Black Caucus is that it's inconsistent.、Um, they have, you know, the Caribbean is is a diverse region with many different stakeholders and regional interests and nation national interests. It's it's the Congressional Black Caucus can't cover it all, right? There's so much going on in the region, whether it's Trinidad or Barbados or Guyana, that the Congressional Black Caucus just can't. You know, allocate its time to to towards that. So there is a need for a working and functioning、um, Caribbean Congressional Caucus. But the thing is, is how do you who should be on a, that specific caucus? Because right now the members of the caucus are usually made up of those that are on the Congressional Black Caucus and those that are of Cuban American descent. Some of the more active members in Congress that are interested in the Caribbean, such as an Adriano Adriano Espelat,、um, he's not on the caucus. He's been the most active recently, trying to find, you know, allocate more money towards Caribbean projects and the CBSI and and things like that.、Um, there are some other vocal supporters. You know, there's Stacy Plasket. I might be saying that wrong, but she's a representative for the Virgin Islands.、Um, there's Maxine Waters, who's on the Congressional Black Caucus and has been an advocate for the Caribbean.、Um, she's, you know, worked on everything from debt cancellation、um, for Caribbean countries, you know, speaking about Haiti, TPS for Bahamians after Hurricane Dorian.、Um, we have Hakeem Jeffries, who is a very influential member in Congress, but. And and and、um, his district specifically has a high concentration of Caribbean Americans, so he would be active as well.、Um, you have, you know, like I mentioned, the Cuban representatives. You have 
Albio Sires, who is the chair of the Western Hemisphere Subcommittee. You have Greg, Gregory Meeks, who's now the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, which is a huge role. And he's always been a, a friend of the Caribbean. And his district has a concentration of Caribbean Americans. And that's to say that there's there's lots of stakeholders in Congress for the Caribbean. But there there's yet to be a functioning congressional caucus in which they can sit and meet and discuss Caribbean interests. Hmm. So what's been prevented that from happening? You know, I think it's a it's a two way thing. Um, you know, on one hand of of Congress, you know, I, I would say that the Congressional Black Caucus would see itself as a represent representation of the Caribbean. And they may think that, you know, what they're doing is enough. Um, on the other side of the Caribbean side is there needs to be more engagement from the Caribbean to push for a congressional caucus. They need to they need to not just go to the Congressional Black Caucus, but go to, you know, the Natural Disaster Caucus, go to the Human Trafficking Caucus, the Oil and Gas Caucus, travel and tourism and, and, and say, you know, and, and use lobbying efforts, use, you know, dialogues, use the Caribbean ambassador, the CARICOM ambassadors that are in D.C. to push for that, to say that we need a caucus. We need to meet quarterly or every six months or at least annually. And, and it needs to be a two way thing. Both sides need to put some sort of effort into it. So I, I wonder if this was one of these, you know, large Caribbean integration problems where, you know, in the Caribbean region itself, there's no such thing as Caribbean. It's only when you go outside the Caribbean, you have Caribbean ideas. So I kind of wonder if, is it a problem with the regional governments actually have not coordinated amongst themselves, actually have these things as a collective um, negotiation or collective uh, lobby in D.C.? Yeah, you know, that that's an interesting point. And, and, and you're right, right? Outside the Caribbean is when it's called the Caribbean. And, and the problem is that U.S. Caribbean relations is not the relationship. It's the parameter, right? We need to consider U.S. Guyana, U.S. Trinidad, U.S. Barbados, U.S. Antigua, you know, as the different types of relationships. And, you know, when the Caribbean ambassadors, you know, they go to D.C. or Caribbean governments engage with Congress, they're doing it on behalf of their country and not the region. Because, you know, the, the, like, like we all know, the Caribbean is very diverse. There's there's very little times, even in climate change, can you go? Can a Caribbean government go to the U.S. and say these are the climate concerns we have? Because the Caribbean just geographically it just ex um, experiences climate change differently. So so a, a lot of it is the diversity of the Caribbean itself. Um, and, and you know, in order for there to be some sort of regional effort. You know, that would have to, to me, the best way is for it to go through CARICOM. So have have you been seeing any material movement on that, on the CARICOM side, you know, in the last couple of years? Um, I, I haven't actually, which is interesting mm -hmm. because, you know, the, the care, you know, the Caribbean, the CARICOM countries are, you know, they all have diplomatic relations with the U.S., but it doesn't seem that the U.S. is using that to its advantage, Right. We've seen other, you know, institutions or other governments, whether it be Canada or the UN Secretary General, you know, engage collectively with CARICOM. But we haven't seen the United States do that. Um, and, you know, you know, to CARICOM's benefit, when the when when the U.S. has tried to engage with CARICOM nations, 
they've done it selectively. Um, you know, whether it's and this is particularly during the Trump administration, where, you know, inviting select governments to Mar-a-Lago or going to sending Secretary Pompeo to Jamaica and inviting only a few governments or taking a trip to the Caribbean, but only visiting Guyana and Suriname, for example. There's been little to almost zero collective engagement um, or outreach from the U.S. to CARICOM. You've mentioned the Congressional Black Caucus. You've called out a few names in particular. Yes, I understand that there are, you know, very many different issues that the caucuses have to contend with. But have you been seeing any material movement towards, you know, Caribbean-focused issues, uh, even in those arrangements? Um, you know, I actually haven't, um, you know, excluding Haiti. Haiti, the, the problems in Haiti right now have um, come to the attention of the Congressional Black Caucus and they've been outspoken about it. But on, in, on other matters, whether it was, um, you know, Guyana's electoral crisis or, um, you know, uh, you know, Maduro, um, detaining Guyanese fishing vessels and citizens or, you know, the, the, the criticisms of Trinidad's, um, and the Venezuelan refugees, you know, these are issues that are largely impactful in the Caribbean, impactful to U.S.-Caribbean relations, but the Congressional Black Caucus hasn't been outspoken about it. Um, that may be for domestic reasons, and or it just may be that it's an act is a highly active caucus, and they just don't have the bandwidth to to um, speak on every Caribbean matter. I mean, and the reason that they would speak on Haiti also is that the U.S. is heavily invested in Haiti. Haiti gets the majority of U.S. foreign assistance um, to the Caribbean, um, an overwhelming amount. So they are a massive stakeholder in the country. Moving from Capitol Hill to Think Tank role, do you get a sense that the D.C. Think Tank circuit understands the issues that Caribbean countries are actually trying to lobby for are the actual issues that affect the Caribbean day to day and not just what they assume or want the issues to be. So I guess in a way I'm trying to ask, do you think that DC think tanks get it when it comes to Caribbean policy? Yeah, that's a that's a tricky question because one is you you won't find too many think tanks and I, and in this answer I'll include universities because the DC universities, you know, Georgetown George Washington, um, American University, Johns Hopkins, they're also influential in the same way that think tanks are, um, you know, as this like body of knowledge, body of policymaking, you know, and, and the thing is, is one, you won't find a lot of think tanks and universities that are focusing on the Caribbean, even when they, even when they have a strong thematic focus on Caribbean issues, such as climate change or migration. Um, there, there isn't a regional focus on the Caribbean. Um, and that's the first big problem. Um, the second is those that have had a focus on the Caribbean. Um, it's primarily been one on Haiti or the Dominican Republic or been focused on Cuba. It hasn't so much been the English speaking Caribbean, the, the CARICOM nations. Um, and a lot of the times when you see Latin America and the Caribbean from a think tank, 
it's more symbolic than anything. It's or inter or Americas or inter-American. It's all symbolic. The Caribbean is usually excluded. Um, and, you know, the, the, the next part of your question is because of that, when there is a Caribbean program in a think tank, it's, it's, it lacks the sufficient nuance that it should have. Um, like I mentioned to you before, Caribbean is, is, is all, is a general, is a generalization, right? The care, each country has a different relationship, has different national interests, and it needs to be treated as such. The DC think tanks see the Caribbean as this block, um, that, that, you know, only, you know, and the only, the only sort of resources that put towards research has to do on climate change. But it is not exactly climate change from a Caribbean perspective. It's U.S. climate policy and where does the Caribbean fit? Yeah, it does seem that the U.S. approach to foreign policy when it comes to climate change is obviously very U.S.-centric. And to mean that translates into more of a homeopathic foreign policy and not an actual foreign policy. Because in Caribbean, it is, you know, very important that the climate question is discussed. However, it, to me, masks the actual question, which is how do we get infrastructure? And until we actually have a real conversation about that, these things that the U.S. do where they have teacher training seminars about how to, you know, explain different things to children or have these small $2 million fund here or $5 million fund here about beach restoration or, you know, build a warehouse for some seeds in, you know, Guyana. Very marginal, um, very marginal projects that are very symbolic. But if the U.S. has only become a foreign policy of symbolism, it, it, it's kind of obvious why the Caribbean would turn elsewhere to kind of get actual concrete material gains. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, um, and, and it, to me, it boils down to a lack of a Caribbean perspective, right? Any a, Anybody in the Caribbean can talk at length on the necessity for climate infrastructure, right? And, and it pertains to other issues. I can I can imagine that there's not many experts here in Washington that, you know, that are in think tanks that can tell, that can talk about the different approaches to Venezuela, for example, from the CARICOM nations, can talk about the different approaches to China, can talk about different approaches to the U.S., you know, Cuba, things like that. The nuance there is important because, you know, if, if, you know, especially under a Biden administration where he's you know, clearly putting an emphasis on multilateralism, you know, each it's one nation, one vote in many of these multilateral systems at the Organization for American States. Now, if I'm a U.S. policymaker, I need to understand, and I'm focused on the Caribbean, I need to understand the position of every um, Caribbean state and why that position is the way it is. You know, when they talk about the Caribbean, for example, there was an article recently about Trinidad and Venezuela and and the criticisms on Trinidad were were in, in some way you know correct, but there was many points of the article, and and I mentioned this because it was picked up by a lot of you know U.S. media outlets and on Twitter and things like that, stating you know um, Trinidad's unswerving alliance towards Maduro, you know, and and, and that is their you know you know and, and that is their thought process at this, and they would have made this statement at the same time that Trinidad was condemning Maduro for detaining Guyanese fishing vessels. So, you know, that's the importance of having, um, of having you know, Caribbean programs and understanding Caribbean perspectives because you need to understand the distinctions there, 
right? You know, there's no one in the Caribbean would say, you know, any Caricom nation has an unswerving alliance with, you know, um, the, uh, with Maduro. And, you know, and, and to some things, Hank's credits, there have been Caribbean, has been interest in the Caribbean. Um, the Atlantic Council's recently, um, Car- recently launched Caribbean Initiative is one that's specifically focused to the English-speaking Caribbean. Um, and it's make, it's, it's at its earliest stage, but it's making its attempts to try to offer a Caribbean perspective to U.S. policymakers and to Congress. Um, there's Global Americans, which is um, primarily online, but they have a Caribbean corner where they don't always offer a Caribbean perspective, but they have a consistent amount of writing on the Caribbean. Um, and, and these things matter because it, it's, um, it's raising awareness, it's raising the Caribbean's profile, it's showing stakeholders in the U.S. that it's time to pay attention to the Caribbean. Um, and the only way to sort of incorporate a Caribbean perspective is if there's some sort of interest first. So, so I think that's going to be a positive thing to look forward to is a way to change the narrative on how we talk about the Caribbean because there's opportunities because of this interest that's being drawn up. On that point of tone, there was this, you know, sloppy geopolitical tangle of three weeks ago where Guyana had agreed to uh, have Taiwan set up an office in Guyana, mostly to facilitate the potential investments. But then a day after the deal was announced publicly by the U.S. and Taiwan, it was just scrapped by Guyana. And of course, the global report about this is going to be quite wild and quite intense. But there is one line from a Reuters article that has stuck with me even to now. It said, Guyana, comma, a former British colony. And, you know, it really goes to show that the Caribbean from the outside is stuck in this weird patronizing post-colonial limbo. And the stories that we have of ourselves, that we tell ourselves, is completely misaligned from any kind of outside view of the Caribbean. And I, I do wonder how that is going to change o- o- over time. Yeah, I mean, the narrative is, you know, and this is not just in U.S. media or in Washington, D.C. I would say I'd go a step further and say most of the region um, looks down on the Caribbean or doesn't doesn't appreciate the agency of the Caribbean states, doesn't understand the the contributions the Caribbean has made to the international system. For very small states, the Caribbean continues to punch above its weight. Um, we continue to produce leaders that are not just leaders in the region, but are leaders globally, you know, and quickly, you know, the, uh, Mia Motley, Prime Minister Mia Motley is one of those. Um, and, and the problem is when you have this narrative of, you know, just a small state, a developing state, a former British colony, um, it's a, it's a little bit, it's a little bit discriminatory. If that would make sense. Yeah, I, I agree. So one of the other things I'm curious about is, on average in D.C., you know, in the think tank circuit and Congress and so on, what's the current perception of the CBI, the Caribbean Basin Initiative? I know there's been some talk about the upgrades, some talk about the refurbishment and reorientation. I know, for example, the CB- Caribbean Basin Security Initiative was actually passed recently, was pushed by now President Biden. 
So what's the general perception of CBI uh, now, now in D.C.? I think people are a little bit fed up with the Caribbean Basin Initiative, both the U.S. policymakers and some of the Caribbean governments. There's recently been a lot of talk about should there be a, a version 2.0? Do we need to rethink the Caribbean Basin Initiative? Um, and, and then, you know, yes, at the same time, specifically with regard to the Caribbean Basin Security Initiative is because U.S. foreign policy to the Caribbean is in many ways, using a security lens. Um, you know, it's engaging with the Caribbean. It, it, it values narco-trafficking. It value, you know, it, it values, um, you know, the, you know, Venezuela and what's going on there and Cuba and illegal illicit activity. So, so it's still playing a pivotal role. Um, another thing has been that because of the Caribbean Basin Initiative, there have been many other, um, you know, lobbying efforts uh, with regard to it that have come about. Many other agreements that have come about it. You know, it's it's been because it's now morphed into this broader framework of you know uh, the Caribbean 2020 um, strategy, multi-year strategy, in which security, you know, the CBSI is now just a one pillar of this strategy that also includes, you know economic, um, you know, diplomacy, you know, climate change, things like that. So let me mention that aspect. Are there any specific, what are called hot topics that are, uh, you know, tossed around in the in DC circuit that uh, really see Caribbean? Because again, usually what I hear is climate policy, let's do more climate, so on, so on. Sometimes I hear a good percent about narco traffic, but... Not as much you know, and, and you hit it on the head. It's mostly climate and security because those are U.S. interests. Um, and it's it's a little bit perplexing because when you think of other U.S. interests, whether it be Venezuela or Cuba or China or migration, you know, human trafficking, things like that, human rights, um, the Caribbean plays a role in all of it, right? Um, so So it's interesting that, you know, these these hemispheric interests of the United States doesn't include the Caribbean and or the Caribbean is not spoken of, you know, widely about it because I could never, you know, I can't imagine a scenario in which the U.S., you know, tr- competes with China or finds a, a diplomatic end to the situation in Venezuela or engages more with Cuba uh, without including CARICOM states. I mean, there were there, not just because of the proximity of it, but because of the usefulness of CARICOM states. Um, you know, CARICOM CARICOM states and CARICOM governments pride itself on being brilliant diplomats, right? Those are things that that are of assets to the U.S. interests. So, so it's interesting that most of it is on climate and security, warranted, of course. And then the other thing is, and we already spoke about this, is it's not exactly the Caribbean's perspective on security and um, narco-trafficking and climate. It's what the U.S. policy is and if the Caribbean fits into it. Because there's no guarantee that the U.S. will have a, you know, a foreign policy directed towards climate change where the Caribbean fits perfectly in it or benefits the Caribbean entirely. So, so it, that's, you know, that's, that will be something, you know, to look out for under the Biden administration is 
will their policy towards climate change be beneficial to the Caribbean? Um, but the other part of this is, is that the Caribbean has to actively push its interests forward. It has to actively make itself part of the conversation and make itself part of the narrative. So, okay, well, on that, on that point, how would you recommend that happening? Like, what is the actual mechanism or, let's see, strategy shift from the Caribbean side that they would have to actually be more engaging, more lobbying in D.C.? Well, the first thing I would say is the diaspora is important. And I know that different CARICOM nations have prided the diaspora. You know, they they have you know tried to engage with the diaspora. Jamaica has done so. But okay, but in 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 this case, what exactly do you mean by diaspora in in this context? Well, I I mean it as in the you know Caribbean Americans need to be sort of an extension of Caribbean government. Caribbean governments have their representatives in D.C. the the ambassadors, right? They but the the Caribbean diaspora, the Caribbean Americans, could be the basis for a new Caribbean congressional caucus, a Caribbean diaspora congressional caucus, or a Caribbean American congressional caucus, because the, the representatives that could make up this sort of congressional caucus would be um, would be representatives of you know districts where there are high concentrations of Caribbean Americans. Which means that in order to be reelected, you have to make your constituents happy. And if your constituents are Caribbean Americans, then, you know, and if Caribbean Americans are putting or trying their best to push Caribbean interests forward, then you're finding some mutual engagement there. Okay. So I agree with that point because I, I, I saw this report by, I think, the World Bank, where it's talking about diaspora policies and so on. The Caribbean has the highest proportion of diaspora of any region in the world. It will average 20 some percent for the Caribbean. And for comparison in like, um, Latin America, it's about 5%. So the, the attractiveness and the potential, uh, extent that the Caribbean government's going to lobby into the Caribbean diaspora is almost quite, it's very, very powerful. I sometimes joke that there are more Barbadians in, in New York than, than there are in Barbados. And <laughs> I also remember I was in, I was in Montreal when the, uh, Prime Minister Mayor Motley Barbados had a big town hall meeting in Montreal. It was very, very well attended. So it's a huge diaspora, um, diaspora uh, population. And it is, it is still, curious that that hasn't been done it's all it's more curious still because i think every election cycle every big you know parliamentary speech the politicians in the caribbean always talk about engaging more is the diaspora mm-hmm. but yet they don't and I, I, that, that's definitely a failure on the caribbean side but the potential of the diaspora and these issues uh, i agree is, is quite uh quite quite great yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. No, that's an interesting statistic. You're going to have to send that to me. But, you know, look at the Cuban-American community in Miami. You know, at a national level, look at what that has done for U.S. politics. It has made Florida a battleground state, an important state. I'm not saying that Caribbean-Americans from CARICOM nations will have to do the same. But I'm, when it comes to those other elections for the House of Representatives or the U.S. Senate, that's where it will be important, right? Um, if you think, you know, I, I, you know, somebody had mentioned to me a couple days ago that Texas now has the second highest concentration of of Guyanese people 
of the diaspora um, behind New York, right? For obvious reasons, because a lot of oil and gas, you know, consultancies and, and you know, and institutes and things like that in Texas. But, but you know, what I'm thinking is, you know, the, the representatives of those districts, right? They had this influx of Guyanese people, influx of Guyanese diaspora. They would need to pay attention to their interests if they want to be reelected. And the same will go for those in New York, those in Fort Lauderdale, Broward County, some of them in California, things like that. What, what needs to happen is almost like a survey. I don't know if anybody, not, not, just, not just the Caribbean, but the U.S. also, knows who are the actual stakeholders in the Caribbean on, in Congress. Um, I know that the State Department, the U.S. State Department, on an ad hoc basis, had met with diaspora organizations. Um, I do, that's not a consistent thing, but it maybe it should be a consistent um, thing when it comes to sort of engaging with the Caribbean. The other thing is there's so many diaspora organizations, so many Caribbean diaspora organizations, not just around the world, but particularly in the United States, right? There should be, you know, it would be nice, and this is maybe, you know, too optimistic, but there would be nice if there were some sort of broad Caribbean framework or you know, umbrella organization that helps to, you know, organize these diaspora organizations, because if, you know, if they have some common objectives, they can be a lot more impactful. And it goes back to your question about, um, you know, regional integration, right? Regional integration is not just a CARICOM concept. It needs to happen in the United States also in order to have greater effectiveness when it comes to Caribbean interests. And the other thing I would say is, the you know the other thing i would say is that it, it it would be important you know if there was some sort of caribbean american you know congressional caucus because i think that would better reflect the diversity of the caribbean itself so let's talk about the us embassies in 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 the caribbean on one side yes there are these political agents on the other side there are information gatherers do you think that the the embassies in the Caribbean are actually properly assessing the state of play in the Caribbean that could therefore actually supply information and policy recommendations that are sufficient back to DC? The the problem with the US embassies is that they're part of the US State Department, which means that they're heavily bureaucratic. So I'm not too sure about what their autonomy is when they're in country. Right. How how I don't I'm not too sure about to what extent can they set their own agenda? Can they can they you know, they they would have different departments, right? They would have a public diplomacy officer, which is which will be used to help craft the U.S. message in you know Guyana, for example. They will have, you know, communications. They will have the ambassador itself. Um, you know, what I did see is during Guyana's electoral crisis, the U.S. embassy was heavily involved in um relaying US um you know US communications to the Guyanese people and the Guyanese government. Um they were the I know that the US embassy in Guyana has been, you know, particularly um involved with some of the DC think tanks, like the International Republican Institute, on crafting, you know, what should be some of the electoral and constitutional reforms in Guyana. So, but but I'm not too sure about the rest of the region. Um, you know, what I do know is that the U.S. should have a diplomatic presence 
if it's serious about the Caribbean, it should have a diplomatic presence in each Caribbean state. You know, I think one of the biggest problems is lumping the entire Eastern Caribbean together. I One of the problems of within the sort of U.S. Caribbean paradigm is, you know, and I'll be very blunt about it, is a lack of respect for the Caribbean ambassadors, not just U.S. government officials, but D.C. universities and D.C. think tanks. I would argue, you know, and, and there may be many people that beat me back on this, but I would argue that many of the Caribbean ambassadors are not just highly effective in what they do, but are more qualified and more competent than their counterparts in the United States. Um, and the problem has been, you know, and because they're highly competent, highly qualified, they can affect change, right? They can help craft policy that's beneficial to the United States and their specific country and the region. But it's been this lack of engagement. There's, you know, little times, there's minimal times in which, you know, high-ranking U.S. officials are, will meet with the Caribbean ambassador. You know, um, there's, you know, a few times where D.C. think tanks and D.C. universities will engage with the Caribbean ambassadors. Um, you know, if you think about it, one of the benefits of the Caribbean being, a, Caribbean countries being small states is that there's a lot of, there's a lot of competence to the diplomatic corps. Right. Many of the ambassadors are not just ambassadors to the U.S. They're also permanent representatives, organization of American states or ambassadors to other countries, high commissioners to other countries. They have the capabilities to act better than than, than most of the foreign service officers in the U.S. State Department. They should be seen as such. They should be seen as highly competent and and as avenues of engagement. Um, and, and I would hope that in the future, more D.C. think tanks and more D.C. universities will call on them for their expertise, um, you know, especially when it comes to climate change, especially when it comes to, you know, other diplomatic crises, whether it's in Venezuela or Cuba or, you know, what have you. And, you know, just to add to that point, I'd like to remind people that it's only been twice that a U.S. president has come to Caribbean. Mm-hmm. It was Obama and Reagan. And if I remember and, correctly, Obama came for Summer of the Americas, right? Yeah, that, that that's right. Well, he had to go then. <laughs> that was involuntary. <laughs> and, and Reagan only came to Caribbean because wanted to rally favor for the CBI just after the Grenada invasion. So, And I also want to contrast that with China. So Xi Jinping came to the Caribbean for the first time in 2013. It's obviously the first time a Chinese president has also come to the Caribbean. But he came to Trinidad to start a tour of the Americas. That's a, you know, pretty big event. But to emphasize that, it wasn't only Xi Jinping. It was also other members of the Politburo Static Committee, like Wang Huning, uh, Wang Qichan. They all, they all were there. And literally the very top brass of the entire Chinese government came to that for the entire diplomatic role. And you never see that from, from the U.S. side. Which is, you know, extremely shocking given the centuries of engagement. And it's just, you know... Especially because um, it's literally right there. <laughs> yeah, it's just right there. Mm-hmm. And on that note... Do you have any final thoughts to leave with us? I just want to make one quick point. The the to me the most important point about when we think about the Caribbean with within the sort of U.S. Caribbean per- paradigm is 
U.S. policymakers need to stop looking at the Caribbean, needs to start looking at the Caribbean as the piece missing from the puzzle. All these issues that the U.S. raves about in Latin America, the Caribbean is part of the solution. When it comes to Venezuela, when it comes to China, when it comes to Cuba, when it comes to more thematic things like climate change and migration and security, the Caribbean is part of the solution. You can't, you can't just discount 14 independent states in the Americas and think that you can come up with hemispheric solutions to hemispheric problems. You have to include the Caribbean if you, wa- if you want these sort of things to be worked out. Thanks so much, Wazem, for this thoughtful conversation. I'm sure we're going to have a part two uh, very soon. Thank you. I appreciate it. Sounds